welcome to Black Body Health, the podcast. This is the show where we come together to talk about the intersection of our health and our culture. Podcasting from South Louisiana, this is Brittany Castine, preacher, pastor, political junkie, and now podcaster. And I am Ideal Ortiz, your co-host with Brittany, hailing from the Bull City and a longtime public health advocate. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's get started. Today we've got with us Ricardo Thomas. Thank you so much for being with us today as our guest. And we're going to be talking about something that people don't always intuitively connect with health. And that is we're going to talk a little bit about Black wealth and the impact on health. So welcome, Ricardo Thomas. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thank you, Ideal. And thank you to you, uh, to uh, Whitney. I'm certainly excited to be able to participate here in episode, I believe you said, 24. And certainly this is an important topic to talk about the intersection of health and wealth. But I am a practicing financial consultant. Uh, I've been doing this now for 37 years, president of Thomas Waddell and Associates, headquartered out of New Orleans with clients all across the country. And uh, our focus is, is truly on financial consulting, asset management, and a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today, financial education or financial literacy. Because oftentimes we don't know what we don't know. And to your point, uh, uh, especially in this country and looking at what's going on now, there is a direct correlation between the wealth or the money in our pockets and our well-being, as we've seen over the last almost two years. So I'm glad to be here with you all to talk about that. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your background. I know that you've got a lot more to offer that you probably didn't mention there, but those are some important points. And you know, people are like, I cannot believe y'all are about to have somebody talk about financial literacy on a health podcast, but I just want folks to get real situated in some good data. You know, uh, some, some studies have been published. The Whitehall studies were first published actually in 1978, these studies followed British civil servants over lots of years. And what they found, um, and their researchers are part of the World Health Organization Commission on Social Determinants of Health. And what they found is that a person's risk of poor health and disease increased as their socioeconomic status decreased. And to put it another way, to put it more directly, right? Low wages in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, right, have said that low wages should be considered a psychosocial occupational health hazard. I just don't think people um, always hear the argument around health framed that way. And so, you know, as they always tell us, follow the money. And when you follow the money, you often find poor health, um, where you, where you, if you follow where there is little money, <laughs> you'll find also less health out, less good health outcomes. So it's important for us to understand the black dollar, black wealth and what its impact is, but let's, let's, let's move on and talk about some of this financial literacy. So Ricardo, what do you really, what do you, how would you respond to that information knowing, I mean, 
one article that I read fairly recently indicated that it costs uh, to be poor. And uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot in the public health space is this thing uh, called intersectionality, which deals with how multiple things sort of all work together to form individuals' realities and their contexts. Um, and so, you know, not to be super cliche, but health is wealth, right? And, you know, it, as I mentioned, it caught it, an article said that it costs to be poor. What they were really alluding to is that folks who are financially strapped, a little more financially insecure, um, make choices around their existence and their survival. For example, you know, they eat cheaper food, which is not good ultimately for their health. They, they live in a housing that they can afford, but may not be in a neighborhood that has that's connected by um, good lighting and by um, you know well lit areas and sidewalks and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so when we talk about you know the intersectionality of health and individuals' wealth, what would you say? How do how does you see it in your world? How do you see that in your world? Because it's clear uh, from our perspective. And, and that's a good point. And let me say this: there's a lot packed into what both of you have said you know, about the intersectionality between health and wealth. And I'll put it this way. Our choices are defined by what we have or don't have in our pockets. You know, just to simplify it to that point there and think about that in the, in the context of what we've all experienced over the last almost two years now with the pandemic. Our choices as it relates to whether or not we go to see the doctor, you know, whether or not the type of treatment we are offered as we are finding out really depends on do you have health insurance or not? Can you afford to pay the bill? And unfortunately, disproportionately, that's been uh, uh, impacting communities of color. Okay, you know, so when we talk about wealth, when we talk about health, and obviously, uh, with this heightened awareness over the last couple of years about social justice and so forth, even uh, in recent weeks, we've been talking about what the, the, uh, the wage gap for women and how, how much more black women have to work just to uh, equal what their white male counterparts are making. Well, guess what? Well, if that's the case, if we have to work that much more, and then you mentioned something key, Whitney, there, when you talked about survival, for many of us, we've been operating in a mode of survival from day one. And if you have to choose between, oh, let's see, can I pay my rent this month? Or can I go to the doctor? And if it's something where your, your arm is not dangling off, you know, off of a, a, by a ligament, you say, oh, I'll get to it later. So there is a direct correlation when it comes to discretionary income of being able to do those things that are not uh, immediate. And, you know, and health is one of those. And unfortunately, many times we are disproportionately in jobs where we don't have good benefits. Okay, so there is a correlation with that. The other part of it is too, is financial literacy. And so that's where the intersection comes in because let's, let, let's go down uh, the history track for a moment. Who are our first teachers as it relates to money? And it's our parents for better or for worse. Okay, it's okay. our parents and they do the best they can with what they know and who were their teachers? Their parents for better or worse. My family was no different. I remember the grandmother and the great grandmother who used to put money under the mattress and in the back of the closet, in the coat pocket and in the coffee can and all of those things. But that was part of the times that they grew up in. 
And you know, and for when, when you got to the next generation, they got a little bit more sophisticated and opened up a savings account in the bank. And if you were really super sophisticated, you got that CD. Oh, you had arrived if you had a CD in the bank. But we're realizing now that that's not enough. It wasn't enough then, but that's all they knew and they did the best they could. So part of the problem uh, or part of the need that we have to address in our community is becoming more financially literate, becoming more financially educated. And, and I can tell you uh, in all of the years that I've been doing this, you know, there, there have been initiatives here and there, you know, about uh, uh, instituting financial education in school. But the reality is when you look at our society as a whole, a capitalist society, it truly thrives off of people being uninformed, okay? Think about what I just said there. It truly thrives off of people being uninformed. Well, Plus, only a few thrive. So let's be clear, capitalism does require that there exactly. are That's right. losers. And I would also like to say mm -hmm. here, I would like to frame it not as lack of financial literacy. I think that when there was rampant abuse by banks to steal the hard earned money of black mm -hmm. and brown um, clients that mm -hmm. people made actually a very wise decision to keep their money where they could access it and not be um, problematized when walking into the office to access what they had earned and saved to um, be hit over the head with fees that they could not discount and then end up with a not a, a, a zero balance, but even a negative balance. Um, and having worked in a lot of programs that work directly with poor people, even to this day, mm -hmm. um, we have a long ways to go um, with unbanked families because banking institutions um, are not meant to support privilege or advantage black and brown low wealth families. Um, oh, and, oh, and that's oh, a reality oh. that I had to contend with as a more privileged person, mm -hmm. that the ways in which they needed their banking services to be structured were mm -hmm. just not being offered. It just, the banking services weren't being offered that way. And that was a very sane uh, decision-making on their part to say, we're gonna keep our money out of the bank because actually it's less, it's less drama for us to do that. The fluidity of how we need to move and the instability of our circumstances does not allow a compatible and harmonious relationship with the banking industry. And I, and I hear what you're saying. Uh, however, my experience is this, and first of all, you're absolutely right. There has certainly been inequities as to how the banks uh, have treated us and in many ways still continue to treat us. But there are solutions because when we look back in our own history, well, we did have our own black banks, okay? And so it's been a question of, did we patronize and did we support our own banks? But even to the other side with the majority banks, as I'll label them for right now, we all know, and we've certainly uh, seen this demonstrated over the last year and some change, that at the end of the day, it's all about that almighty dollar and they will do whatever it is to, to stay in our pockets. So we have to recognize how much economic power that we have, okay? And then force them to make the changes that are beneficial to us. But again, that goes back to financial literacy. You know, case in point, and, and, I'll, and Brittany has uh, heard me do this before, but, I, but I'll, I'll challenge you all with this question right now and you see where I'm going. 
uh, 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 from the standpoint of understanding the importance of financial literacy and the decisions that we make. So ideal and written if you want to participate with this one, but if you've heard me before, you, you're disqualified on this one. So <laughs> ideal. <laughs> I'll play, I'll play, I'll play. <laughs> Good. So here's my question. If I gave you a dollar today, don't get too excited. It's just a dollar. And let's say you found a bank or credit union. They all work the same way because math is math. And let's say you found a bank that's paying you 3% interest. And you know, when you go down the street or you look online, you see the signs saying we're paying X amount of uh, APR, annual percentage rate, compounded daily, all of this good stuff. So here's my question to you. How long does it take for $1 to grow to $2 if you're getting 3% on your money? Now, I'm going to give you a minute to think on that because think about it. All of us work, most of us these days do not get a check anymore. We get some type of direct deposit, you know, and all of those things like that. So we have some type of relationship to whatever extent to a bank. So we should know what's going on with our money. So the question is, how long does it take for $1 to grow to $2 if you're getting 3%? And while you're thinking about it, no, you can't Google it or look it up on your phone. So... <laughs> And so your answer is? I'm going to guess 10 years. Okay. 30, yeah, I, well, no, 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 30 years, 30 years. Okay. So you're saying that if you have $1 and you're getting 3%, that is going to take you 30 years to double your money, correct? Is that your final answer? I'm, I'm just guessing. Yes, I'm just guessing. So much pressure. So, so look at what you just said. I'm just guessing. So we should know that. We should know that from day one, what's going on with our money. And I, I, I go through this exercise intentionally because if we don't know, then how can we expect our, our fellow people in the community you know, to, to know these things? So the answer is this, it's called the rule of 72. Whatever rate of return you're getting on your money, you divide it into the number 72. And it tells you not how many days, weeks or months, but how many years it takes to double your money. So essentially we're explaining compound interest, okay? So in this example here, if you're getting 3%, we're just doing division, 72 divided by three, or three goes into 72, how many times? And either, either one of you can answer that. 72 divided by three equals? Nine. No. You are putting me on the spot in math and I am tired. <laughs> no, no problem. I'll help you out here. 72 divided by three equals 24. So that means if I put a dollar in the bank and getting 3% on it, it's going to take 24 years to double. Now, my question is, how? Uh, what's wrong with that? That's what? I want it's more too money long. <laughs> want it's more money too long. <laughs> if I got to wait 24 years to double my money, how can I create wealth to take care of myself, much less than to create generational wealth if it's going to take me that long? Now, remember, in this example, I use 3%, but there's a problem with that. Banks aren't paying 3% right now. They're paying 1% and, and less. So let's Surely do the not. All right. So let's do the math again. One goes into 72, how many times? 72 years. So if it takes me 72 years to double my money. I'm in the grave, five in. And there you go, exactly. And that's and so, longer than a lot of people's life expectancy in you certain got it. cities. 
That's exactly right. And that's what we're talking about here, the importance of financial literacy, because when we know better, then we can do better and make sure we have realistic expectations because think about it, like you just said, you know, a lot of folks made decisions based upon, you know, their previous experiences or they had a bad experience and not realizing that while they were well-intentioned, where they were putting their money was never gonna get them to the destination that they sought you know, of, of having a successful retirement or achieving a certain level of financial independence or being able to pass on something to the next generation. So just understanding that one key component there makes all the difference in the world. And I'm gonna turn the floor back over to you guys in a second, but, but I do wanna plant this seed in your mind. Now flip the script, uh, look at the interest rate that we pay on credit cards, okay? And so if it takes us this long with compound interest for our money to accumulate. And while the formula is a little bit differently when, you, when you're calculating the interest on credit cards, but thanks to the Obama administration on all of our credit card statements, it tells you now that if you pay the minimum payment, this is how long yeah. it's gonna take. They tell and you exactly how much you would have spent on that card and exactly. how long it would take you to pay it off. But exactly. you know, that that does bring me to something though, because sure. mm -hmm. I'm very clear that the wealthy don't have to be nearly as personally responsible for their protection as the poor do, because Paris Hilton can't do anything in her power to make herself less wealthy. She's got the kind of wealth that she can't do anything but continue to grow just because the systems are set up to protect and ensure that she is indefinitely wealthy to some degree. I mean, the game is rigged in that regard. And so I think that a note there that you said about the Obama administration is that for years, credit card operations have run amok and operated in these sort of shady clandestine ways, very, you know, sleight of hand and so you know when thinking about like credit um i just think about you know payday lending and the cash checking the check cashing places that mm -hmm. charge these exorbitant fees this should never actually be allowed to operate in our communities the way they do but they steal our own framework for the discussion by saying that without those institutions there would not be credit and capital available to low-income people and that they service that community um, when no one else will. So it's a very pernicious, it's a very, um, you know, aggressive framing, right? To say that they're the good guy when really we know that they suck people into a perpetual cycle of debt. I think about the um, for-profit, but yet unaccredited educational institutions that are charging people insane amounts of money for degrees that won't be acknowledged by employers because they are not accredited institutions. Um, and so, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the way that all goes. And unfortunately, what that means is people are left holding a bill and very little personal long-term benefit for what they just spent, whether it's to get their check cashed mm -hmm. or, you know, these tax uh, prepare places that will say, oh, well, we'll get you your money now, but it's all a loan. It's all a scheme. And those are the kinds of things, those are the kinds of schemes that are fleecing money out of poor communities. 
And don't let me get me started on the justice system and all the court fees and the citations and mm-hmm. lawyers. You know, that's a whole other bag of worms. But financial institutions themselves are doing a lot of damage. Now, if and I this is one of the. Yeah, go, go ahead, Rick. Well, go ahead. No, please go ahead on, Ricardo. So here's the thing. So, ideal, you are absolutely right. There are many predators uh, in our community. Okay. But the flip side of that, and I'm sure you've heard some of them say that is that we are not forced to go there, okay? So the payday loan place, I don't have to go there. There's no shotgun at, at my head saying I have to go there. You know, and all these other the predatory places. baby needing places. lights is the shotgun. So that's Say that the thing. again? Like, I said the baby needing lights is the shotgun. So but, that's all I'm saying. It's like, I understand that we're not forced to go there, by, but by virtue of their being allowed to operate in a particular way with people who we know have very desperate circumstances, to me, that should just not be allowed. Well, (laughs) I totally get what you're saying, but this is what happens in a capitalist system, free enterprise, where folks are able to open up their business in the easiest way to address these issues. Because here, like I said, I don't disagree with you with any of those uh, uh, companies that you've mentioned and how they take advantage of us. But the easiest way to drive them out is don't patronize them. Now, the flip side of that, from the standpoint of our community, because I've done a lot of work in, in speaking to various groups in our community, is that folks many times utilize these places because they are not aware of the things that we're talking about. Folks have to be educated. Folks have to realize that, oh, wow, I didn't know that that payday loan works like that. Or I didn't realize that when I get that advance on my tax refund, it worked like that. So that means part of it is a community responsibility, whether it's our churches or whatever, you know, to to sponsor events to educate our folks. But a lot of it also is our own personal responsibility to get ourselves informed so that we can make better decisions. And I'll I'll just go back to what I said earlier. When we know better, then we should do better. A lot of that, and, and I get it, when we are desperate, sometimes we end up having to make, you know, desperate decisions. But hopefully as we educate ourselves and understand the power of our dollars, then we can control more of who is allowed in our community and who will succeed or not. Because if we don't patronize them, trust, they won't be there for long at all. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a episode, there's a show that's currently streaming. I'm not trying to give them, you know, um, you know, but there's a show that's streaming called little fires everywhere. I don't know if anybody's seen it and it is, um, starring Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon has this idyllic, perfect life. She is the supreme suburban mama, her she inherited property from her family. And in that inheritance, they left um, one of the uh, one of the um, rental properties. They wanted to keep it affordable, you know, as their way of kind of giving back. And they ended up renting to the character that's played by Carrie Washington, who's, you know, an artist, single mom kind of situation. She's got a whole other backstory. It's very complicated. But at one point, you know, Reese, Reese Witherspoon's character and Carrie Washington are really kind of going at it. And there's this one scene that always sends chills through my body where Reese, uh, Reese's character, um, the wealthy woman in this conversation says to the single mom, you got to make better choices. 
you got to make so that you, you got to make good choices. And Carrie Washington's Carrie said, all you had was good choices. <laughs> and so, you know, I just want to caution us in this conversation, because like I said, I, I live in a particular community that's full of brilliance, but every single day I am in relationship and in conversation with people who make well below poverty levels. Right. Um, and that's just the truth of it. And they know what the price of milk is on any given day. They know what their budget is. They know what they're doing, you know. So um, far be it from me to tell them how to budget that. Um, and I also, you know, drive right by the check cashing places and all the, you know, and the federally qualified health clinics and the senior center and the recovery center and the churches and, you know, all the things. And so, um, you know, and I've also lived in wealthy neighborhoods. And so I understand the difference and the impact of, you know, lots of things, urban planning, um, predatory promotion of services that put us in a cycle of debt and misery. And so, you know, the, let's just say the personal responsibility argument on such a large scale of a thing falls a little flat for me. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And trust me, I totally get it. Because I mean, we, we realize we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people and there are no perfect solutions because certainly we cannot solve today or in a month or a year what has taken generations to create against us. So I get it, I, everything you said there I get. But at the end of the day, still with some of our decisions and, and, and you're right, because we are products many times of our environment and our decisions can be limited based upon the situations we are in. I totally get that too. But still at the end of the day, and I'm gonna go biblical for a minute, so written in my like this one. Uh, Paul said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I become an adult, a man or a woman, then now I have to take some responsibility. So even though my choices may be limited, okay, I still am responsible for it. And again, this is in no way, shape or form reducing the responsibility of what society has done for us. So you're totally right. You know, and that's why I was saying from the standpoint of looking at potential solutions, that we have to come together in the community, whether it's our churches, whether it's our nonprofits, whether our, it's our successful people and saying, hey, your success is my success and vice versa. We have to pull each other up and bring resources to the table to help try to find a solution to those systemic things that are working against us. You know, with that, and, and that's why I say part of it is just education. Now, will that mean because we all know the right answers now, tomorrow we're going to do better? Absolutely not. But what it does do in, in, in hoping to prepare the next generation is by teaching them early that they can make better decisions when it's time for them to be in that position to make uh, decisions. And I think you're absolutely right. And uh, one of the things that really comes to my mind is the fact that there's a place for all of this. In fact, I uh, fortunately have been a part of some work in certain communities that's done some work around um, limiting the number or at least putting a moratorium on payday lenders, um, you know, doing a buffer zone, um, you know, on payday lenders in a given place. 
as well as online payday lenders within certain municipalities and that work has been incredibly important. Um, but, you know, I, I like this conversation because this is a conversation while um, understanding health can be, you know, skewed a bit. A lot of people at least think they understand money and have a desire to understand finances even better than they do. And for me personally, you know, I make financial decisions every single day. Um, some are poor. I'll admit that. Uh, uh, some are some are better, um, and some are um, certainly tied generationally. Man, you you struck you guys struck a nerve because when I think about some of the generational challenges that exist in my own family, um, they're tied directly to to uh, financial matters. Um, they're also tied directly to um, matters related to health. And so even when we think about matters related to health, you know, um, physical health and financial health are linked. They're linked at the hip. And a lot of people don't really know that, but even things like life expectancy, we talked about that just a minute ago. Um, certain risk factors uh, associated with obesity and high cholesterol and uh, blood pressure, um, sometimes that comes down to a commitment um, to living a healthy life. Sometimes that, that's a financial consideration uh, where you eat, live, work, play, and pray. Um, that's important. Um, it's also having to do with professional advancement because people who are healthier often have um, are looked upon more favorably internally for uh, raises. And they also oftentimes are in better moods and have a better approach to the work where they exist. And then also there is healthcare costs. Um, we know when you talk about dollars and cents, uh, straight up dollars and cents, it is cheaper for a um, healthy 35-year-old non-smoker um, to be on somebody's insurance plan than someone who has had a history of other uh, health challenges. In fact, early this morning on the radio, I was listening to one of the major airlines begin to talk about how they're going to start doing a surcharge of $200 per month. On, um, on their employees who do not take the vaccine because they're now viewed as sort of a health risk. Um, whether or not I agree with that, I don't, I really don't even know, but it all comes down to the fact that health is so very much tied to, um, to finances. Yeah, it's, I wanna say that, and, and I don't know if the data has changed, but the last time I read about what the largest contributor to bankruptcy is debt related to an illness, a catastrophic medical illness that required such serious care and expense that it sank the family's finances. Um, so yeah, definitely healthcare delivery is a big um, portion of the financial puzzle. Um, housing affordability and whether it's, y'all like housing stability, like having to move is expensive. Yeah, I, and I've I've been there before. Look, hey, I, I want to in the middle of this. It's sort of like I was preaching a sermon. I changed the title of my sermon in the middle of the sermon. We're gonna change the title of this podcast in the middle of the podcast from uh, from what it was to. It's not just about black and white. It's also about green. <laughs> How you like that? <laughs> That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. But uh, if I can, for a moment, go back to the example that I did mention about the show with Reese Witherspoon and you mentioned about the property they inherited and that struck a chord with me because I'm probably working with about a half a dozen families right now 
where uh, uh, with the death of a, a loved one and they had inherited property. And so we know, uh, and, and even when you look at, when you mention about the case with Paris Hilton, the wealth she has, we all know on here and can agree is not from any work that she ever did. Okay, it's not even the work that her parents did. It goes back to Grandpa Conrad Hilton, and you know, and they put buffers in place to protect her from herself, you know, and so forth. And I can tell you, although I think they've kind of uh, 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 re released the uh, the restrictions on it, but when her her behavior really got out there some years back. Oh, they cut back on her trust. And that's why she kind of disappeared because she didn't have all the grandpa's money or uh, the access to it like, like she always had, you know, from that end. But going back to the example about the inherited property, think about this. And this is something that, you know, many of our families have to deal with. So, and you talk about housing affordability. We know going back one or two generations, say to our grandparents, property ownership was a big thing to them, owning real estate, okay? So you had these folks who sacrificed everything they had, you know, to buy homes, to buy property, and being able to pass land on to the next generation. And that's a good thing. But here it is now, as we are in the current generation, and we're finding out as, as, as these folks are now dying, that they didn't have a will, okay? Uh, that we didn't do the succession. And so now when these properties, and I think about with Hurricane Katrina, obviously I'm here in yeah. New Orleans, but let, let's, let's walk through an example of that for a minute. So here it is, grandma died 25 years ago. Now I've decided I'm grandson, I'm gonna move into grandma's house, okay? We've never changed the, the title on grandma's house. We've never updated the insurance registration on grandma's house. And now here comes Hurricane Katrina and destroys the place, okay? So now the insurance adjuster comes out and says, yeah, you have a legitimate claim and we're gonna pay you. So they're going to send the check, but the check is made payable to who? Grandma, but grandma has been dead for 30 years. So they, they have to put a stop payment on that check because it can't be cashed. Why? Because we did not handle our business of either having a will or doing a succession and getting that done so things would be updated. Now, even in a case where the property is not destroyed, now you have all these multiple generations involved in it. And lo and behold, when you own property, you also have to pay what? Property tax. And here, it is. Oh, I don't want to pay that. They, they, they want the money from when it's sold, but they don't want to pay the property tax and the maintenance and the upkeep. But you can't have one without the other. And you can't sell it until you go through and have clear title with it. So sometimes we can be our own worst enemy when we are given property, when we are given assets, when we inherit those things and we don't do the basics of just putting it in writing and say, upon my death, I want this person to handle this, or I want that person to get it, or I want it to be sold. You know, those kind of things like that will change the trajectory in our families when we're talking about creating wealth. And lo and behold, as we all are seeing many of our, of our communities changing, and you know what I mean by that, and so forth, then we get upset when folks go to the sheriff's sale and buy the properties for pennies on the dollar, and then we complain when we could have taken care of business ourselves and avoided that in the first place.
and it's and and it's a it's a reality. Okay. It's a reality in uh, in in my beloved New Orleans. It's a reality in D.C. where I lived for a long time. It's a reality where Ideal lives. We've in fact talked about that. It's it's um, it's heartbreaking and uh, and really Ideal. I think we're going to have to. This was this was for me a rich, uh, no pun intended, uh, a rich discussion. Um, you meant I, that you were just chuckling, just being so clever over there. <laughs> but but one thing that's got you know that has me going on my mind. I know we're wrapping up here. Is we do need to talk more about this. But you know, with COVID nineteen, I know that there's still people holding out um, on not getting the vaccine because they're wait, they're doing a wait and see approach. Um, they want to see how this plays out in terms of uh, the impact on people who take it to make sure that it's safe. And they're waiting for, you know, more uh, approvals in terms of FDA. And that's great. Um, but certainly if you're going to be one of those holdouts that just is flat out not going to take it at the very least, if you're not going to take the vaccine, go on ahead and get yourself a life insurance policy. Don't make us bury you on our own dime while we out here struggling with COVID. You know, I deal. I, I don't know. I, I need to do some research on that too, because for a minute during the height of the pandemic, um, insurers were not underwriting uh, new policies. I can answer um, that one for you. Being in the industry, you're absolutely correct. They were not. We were all sent notices early on and basically uh, confirming the changing in the criteria and the changing in the rates as it relates to uh, folks with, uh, testing positive with COVID. And so some companies are now starting to take the initiative and kind of relax the underwriting requirements, but that is an ongoing issue. And to Ideal's point, as time uh, elapses further and further and we start to see the long-term impact of COVID, best believe that's gonna be factored into the cost formula yeah. for life insurance. I know that the federal government has um, issued some funds to support burial of those who've been impacted by COVID, but I know that those dollars are likely not gonna be the satisfactory amount that people need to do what they consider a dignified and respectable burial. And that is up to people's taste. I'm not here to right. you know, uh, dictate that. Um, but also I think people are going to be shocked what it's going to cost to close up someone's affairs, because if people have open <laughs> debt, if people have homes that they were relying on the income of this loved one, there's all kinds of implications around this. And I really need us to think about the, um, impacts of our choices when it comes to vaccination. Um, you know, I, I, I think I'm remiss if I don't at, at every juncture of, public discourse to say, y'all, we need to get vaccinated because we have so much more to lose. We have so much to lose. Um, it doesn't protect you 100% from possibly catching COVID, but it does keep you from dying or from ending up severely hospitalized. And that my friends is cool. Like I know I might get a cold or the flu, but I don't expect to go to the hospital or to lose my life over those things. I want COVID to be just as insignificant one day as catching a bad cold or a sinus infection. I don't wanna be dead over this kind of stuff. I don't wanna lose my house over this kind of stuff. Like, come on y'all, let's all work together and maintain what we got. Yeah, I, I, And we're watching that play out. We're, and we're watching that play out in real time for so many families who are struggling. Uh, don't even ideal get me started on the cost associated with being on a ventilator for one day, 
let alone um, weeks and days, you know, a month at a time. So I think this is a great place for us to wrap up. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Ricardo and uh, Ideal and, and others. You know, we have to have a part two of this because this was deep and there's so many other angles that we can go uh, talking about money and health and those intersections can, can have my mind spinning uh, incredibly quickly. But in any instance, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today to episode number 24 of Black Body Health, the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Well, that wraps up this episode of Black Body Health, the podcast. Until next time, this is your co-host, Brittany. And Ideal. You have a great day. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>